0: Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, James Collins explores how the Jehovah's Witnesses could be a part of the last days, and we open the radio vault for a classic conversation on the foundations of the rapture. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. We have been able to proclaim that every day since April of 1933. Your prayers and financial support continue to this day, allowing us to bring clarity to the chaos that is all around us. Thank you. Please continue to pray, and please continue to support Watchmen on the Wall. You can give a gift today by calling 1-800-652-1144 or by visiting our website swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Now, let's open the radio vault and listen in on a conversation between Larry Spargemino and former host Noah Hutchings as they discuss the foundations of the rapture.
1: Well, now, Brother Larry Spargemino and I are going to continue on the subject of foundations and prophecy. Dr. Spargemino, it's good to have you on the program again.
2: Good to be again with you, Pastor Hutchings.
1: Brother Larry, what do we mean by the term rapture? Is that in the Greek? Brother
2: Hutchings, the word rapture is not in the Bible, but the thought certainly is. The word rapture, like the word trinity, they're not Bible words, but those words do express Bible truth. And that's important for us to remember. A lot of times people have told me, well, I can't find the word rapture in the Bible. I say, well, you can't find the word trinity in the Bible either but the concept, the thought is certainly biblical. So, the rapture refers to the miraculous catching up of church age saints when the Lord Jesus Christ returns for his church at the end of this dispensation. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the Bible says this, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. The first time that I ever flew in an airplane, Pastor Hutchings, was a very thrilling experience. I had a friend who had a pilot's license, and one day he asked me if I would like to go flying. I had never flown before, and I said yes. I just about changed my mind, however, when we got to the airport. We were going to be taking off from a dirt runway in a Cessna 150, a tiny little plane. Those little planes usually leave the ground when they hit about 30 miles per hour, but my friend said that he was going to do a high-performance takeoff. He kept that little plane on the ground until it hit about 70, Then he pulled back on the stick, and we shot up into the sky like we had been catapulted from a giant slingshot. It was all very exciting. But imagine how much more exciting it will be when we leave planet Earth at the rapture.
1: Amen. We were talking about the word rapture. People say it's not in the Bible. Of course, as far as that goes, the word Bible is not in the Bible. Yet we know it's the Bible. And we know there is going to be a departure from this earth to meet Jesus Christ in the air. We're told that in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. And I think it's also foretold in 1 Corinthians 15 also and in many other places in the Bible. So I don't care where you call it being jerked from the earth to heaven, or you can call it a sudden transportation. You can call it a sudden flying in the air to heaven or catching away in the air to heaven. It doesn't make any difference what you call it. It is still a sudden departure. The word rapture is used in its inclusive sense. It explains this whole resurrection, changing in the moment of the eye, meeting Jesus up in the air in a state of everlasting joy. I don't care. You don't have to call it rapture. You can call it translation of the church. You certainly won't make me mad, but rapture demonstrates, Brother Larry, God's power over sin and death. Those believers who are in the grave will be raised, and then those who are alive will be caught up.
2: Yes, Pastor Hutchings, the rapture does demonstrate God's power. The verb to catch up implies a forceful catching away. Nothing will be able to stop our ascent into heaven, not even death itself.
1: Unfortunately, some people don't believe that such thing as a rapture will ever take place. They think it is symbolic language. They believe that those who think that there will be a rapture are some kind of religious fanatics.
2: Well, we know that there is nothing symbolic or fanatical about it. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and will receive you unto Myself. Well, did Jesus go? Indeed He did. He was resurrected, and He ascended into heaven. His departure was literal, and His return will be literal. Both events are historical and factual, not mythological and imaginary. Our Lord, however, is not the only one who is coming back at the rapture. Others are coming back with Him. First Thessalonians 4. Verse 14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring back with him. Now the Lord can't bring them back unless they are already with him. I believe these are the souls of those who are absent from the body and at home with the Lord. At death the body goes into the ground. Ecclesiastes 12:7 states, Then shall the dust return to the earth, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. At the rapture, these souls will be reunited with their resurrected bodies. And, of course, Jesus returns as well. We don't want to miss that. 1 Thessalonians 4:16 states, For the Lord Himself shall return. Not as angels, but the Lord Himself. And I think it is interesting, Brother Hutchings, that there are some scriptures that speak about the Lord returning with His angels, but other scriptures speak about the Lord returning by Himself. For example, in Matthew 24, 30, and 31, we read, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels. Now, I believe if we're rightly dividing the word, we will make a distinction between the rapture and the return of the Lord. These are the two phases of the Lord's coming. First Thessalonians chapter 4, a major rapture passage, speaks about what happens at the rapture before the tribulation. Matthew chapter 24, on the other hand, speaks about the second phase, that is... What happens after the Tribulation? After the Tribulation, the Lord comes to earth to deliver Israel. That phase of His coming has nothing to do with the Church. The Church has already been raptured. In the Bible, whenever the Lord's coming is mentioned in connection with Israel's deliverance, as in Matthew 24, we find the mention of angels. But when the Lord comes for the church, he comes without angels, he comes by himself. Now, we might think that First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 contradicts this because it is a rapture passage and it mentions the archangel. However, the reference is not to the archangel or even to the voice of the archangel, it is the Lord himself who does the shouting and it sounds like the voice of the archangel.
1: Brother Larry, you were speaking about the two phases of the Lord's coming. I thought it was very interesting what you brought about in reference to the translation of the church, the taking up of the church. He is by himself, but the second coming, literally coming down to the earth, he is coming with his angels. Also, we notice that in conjunction with his literal return, to this earth to establish his kingdom, it's also spoken of as a time of judgment, a saving of Israel, but a judgment upon the world or a judging of the world. For example, we read here in Isaiah, the 6 chapter, Isaiah talked about Israel. There are overtones for the Christian and church in Isaiah, sure, but Isaiah's main emphasis was on Israel. What is going to happen to Israel? When will God fulfill the covenant to Israel? When will Israel be saved? When will Israel enter into the day of rest? Here we read in Isaiah 66, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury, and is rebuked with flames of fire. Now does that sound like the rapture of the church?
2: Absolutely not. That's one of the reasons why we have to make the distinction between the two phases, yes. Right.
1: Brother Larry, I know there are some people who think that prophecy is not really practical and that studying about the rapture has no real importance for us today. Could you share with our audience some of the practical implications of the rapture.
2: I'm glad that you brought that up, Pastor Hutchings. The rapture is a very, very practical doctrine. In fact, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about the rapture, he was writing to a young church with a lot of new Christians. And he was writing not as a theologian, but as a missionary pastor dealing with a very practical problem. Paul was answering a question that had been raised by this young church. Their question was not, is the Lord coming again? They didn't seem to have any doubts about that nor were they asking are we going to be with the Lord their question was what about those believers in Christ who have died before the Lord returns will they miss out on the rapture and in 1st Thessalonians 4:15, Paul addresses this very issue he says for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep in other words those believers who are still living when the Lord returns shall not precede those Christians who have already died. And then he says, for the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's from 1 Thessalonians four sixteen and 17. So the rapture is a very practical teaching. It provides us with peace and with comfort. It reminds us that though we have lost loved ones who have died in Jesus, nevertheless, we will be reunited with them one day. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, Paul writes in verse 17. Isn't that an encouraging truth? It certainly is. In fact, in verse 18, he writes, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Bible teaching about the rapture is comforting. It has a very pastoral emphasis. Christians are to comfort one another with Bible words that speak about the rapture and about the Lord coming for the church. So let me ask our listening audience, are you comforting one another with these words about the rapture? I hope you are, because that's God's will and purpose for us.
1: Brother Larry, many today are aware seemingly that we are nearing the time of the tribulation period. They are going out and maybe Laying up food, establishing refuge areas, digging slit trenches, or laying up ammunition and guns. I don't want to criticize these people who are doing this because there may be some difficult times before the rapture. I don't know. But if you plan on going through the tribulation and all the mark of the beast and all these terrible times, nuclear wars, plagues, famines, is there any comfort in that?
2: Absolutely not. In fact, we're told that the blessed hope is to be looking for the Lord, not for nuclear war, not for the mark of the beast, not for the revived Roman Empire, or any of those things. So, of course, it's a very dismal picture. That could not possibly be the blessed hope.
1: There are different groups. We can even go back in the 1800s, and probably further back than that, if we want to. All these groups who are predicting the time... Of the rapture I know a couple of years ago over in Korea they told the exact hour and minute the Lord was gonna come and that caused me a lot of grief over there because my books were being published in Korea and everyone then started blacklisting all the books on prophecy including mine these people did not do anyone any favors including me by predicting the time of the rapture they have all been wrong those who have predicted We know that in Galatians 4.4, that in the fullness of time, well, Christ came, was born. And Dr. Weiss brings out, I'm sure you're acquainted with Dr. Weiss, that this means that there was a year, a month, a day, an hour, a minute, a second for Christ to be born. It was foretold in the fullness of time. But Jesus said, No man knoweth the day, the hour, so and so on. But he gave signs so we know it's near. But he says, my father knows, only my father knows, which there is a set day for him to come back. I don't know when it is. I know from the signs of the times that it is near, but I don't know when it is. But what can we know about the rapture?
2: Well, Pastor Hutchings, you're right. Ever since the time of the early church, there have been misguided individuals who have tried to predict the date of the Lord's coming. This has been especially true in times of social unrest and natural disasters, and we are living today in a time of social unrest and natural disasters, so I'm not surprised that we are seeing a lot of individuals who claim to know the date of the rapture. Edgar Wissenon predicted that the Lord would return in September of 1988. He was quite specific in his prediction and claimed that it would occur sometime between the 11th and the 13th of that month. He was wrong. Date setting misrepresents the Bible and the Christian faith. As you point out, it holds both up to ridicule. When the Lord doesn't return at the predicted time, people turn into scoffers. We should not be in the business of making more scoffers. We already have enough scoffers around. Now, people who believe in the prognostications of date setters often do some ridiculous things. They sell their homes, they leave their jobs, and they even put their pets to sleep. They're afraid that Fido might starve in their absence. I think that date setting is very dangerous and wrong. Actually, the rapture, Pastor Hutchings, is a signless event. There are no signs indicating that the rapture can be predicted with any precision. A dispensational understanding of prophecy, if it is consistently followed, will guard us against date setting. Those who do attempt to set dates use passages of Scripture that do not directly apply to the church. Furthermore, since pre-tribulationists believe in an any moment rapture, date setting is a violation of this position. All attempts to date the rapture have had to wrongly resort to the application of passages relating to God's plan for Israel and not to the church. So I think that's very, very dangerous for people to do that kind of thing. But I want to get back to your original question, Pastor Hutchings, which was... What can we know about the rapture? I believe that there are a couple of things that we can know about the rapture. First of all, we can know that it is certain. There is no doubt that Jesus Christ is coming back again to rapture his people. If a person believes the Bible, that person will believe that the rapture is certain. There is absolutely no dispute about that. All Bible-believing Christians believe that the rapture is certain. Secondly, we can know some things about the rapture in relation to other prophetic events. We know, for example, that the rapture will come at the end of the church age and before the millennial kingdom. If we hold to a pre-tribulational view, as I do and as I know you do, We will hold that the rapture comes before the tribulation.
1: Dr. Spargimino, we who hold to a pre-tribulational view of the rapture, that is, those of us who believe that the church will be raptured or translated, if the word rapture bothers you, before the tribulation. We believe that the Lord's return for the church is imminent. Now, would you tell us what is meant by the word imminent and why you believe that the rapture is imminent?
2: The word imminent means suddenly or without warning or unexpectedly. Imminence means that there are no other prophesied events that must take place before the Lord comes to rapture the church. All of the news items can be significant signs of the times, but they are not signs of the rapture. They are signs for the tribulation and for what follows the tribulation, or in that period of tribulation, for example, the smart card, computer chip technology, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, rampant disease, famines, earthquakes, and so on, are all signs that suggest the setting of the stage for the events prophesied for the tribulation era. I do believe that we are seeing at the present significant signs of the times. These are events that have great prophetic significance, events that are reminders of the lateness of the hour. They remind us of the nearness of the rapture without actually being signs for the rapture. Now, Pastor Hutchings, that may sound like double talk, so I want to explain what I mean. In the early days of the month of November, we begin to notice Christmas sales. The stores start advertising for the Christmas holidays. When we start seeing that kind of advertising, we know that Thanksgiving cannot be far off. Thanksgiving precedes Christmas, and signs that Christmas is drawing near remind us of the nearness of Thanksgiving without actually being signs for Thanksgiving. And I think that's a good application of the fact that the signs that we see today remind us of what's going to happen after the rapture, and therefore we can extrapolate back and know that the rapture is near without falling into the error of setting a date for the rapture. Today,
0: we have the Revelation Unveiled Collection. Three books that help us take a deeper look inside the book of Revelation. Included are the books No Uncertain Future, A Study Guide Commentary to Revelation by Pastor Larry Spargemino, Beyond the Revelation by Terry Gale Alexander, and Revelation Seed of the Woman by B.F. Harriet. Order all three books for a gift of $25 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144 or order online swrc.com. The Bible speaks about deceivers in the last days. Could the cult of Jehovah's Witnesses be a part of that deception? James Collins is here to answer that question.
3: The Bible says, For many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth, and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is a partaker of his evil deeds. These verses are from 2 John chapter 1, they are verses 7-11. through 11. There is an explosion of cults and false teachers today. For the next few minutes, I'd like to continue talking about the false teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses. The sect known as the Jehovah's Witnesses started out in Pennsylvania in 1870 as a Bible class led by Charles Taze Russell. After Russell's death in 1916, Judge J.F. Rutherford took over the group. Jehovah's Witnesses based some of their false beliefs on the so-called New World Translation. The New World Translation is most definitely not a valid version of God's Word. There are minor differences among all of the major English translations of the Bible. No English translation is perfect. However, while other Bible translators make minor mistakes in the rendering of the Hebrew and Greek text into English, the New World Translation intentionally changes the rendering of the text to confirm to the Jehovah's Witness theology. The New World Translation is a perversion, not a version of the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael, the archangel, the highest created being. And this contradicts many, many Bible passages which clearly declare Jesus to be God. Jesus is not Michael, the archangel. The Bible nowhere identifies Jesus as Michael or any other angel for that matter. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5-8 through 8 draws a clear distinction between Jesus and the angels. The Bible says, therefore, unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. The hierarchy of heavenly beings is made clear in this passage. Angels worship Jesus who, as God, is alone worthy of worship. No angel is ever worshiped in the Bible. Therefore, Jesus, who is worthy of worship, cannot be Michael or any other angel who is not worthy of worship. It's true the angels are called sons of God, but Jesus is the Son of God. Michael the Archangel is perhaps the highest of all the angels. Michael is the only angel in the Bible who is designated Archangel. Michael the Archangel, though, is only an angel. He is not God. The clear distinction in the power and authority of Michael and Jesus can be seen in comparing Matthew 4.10 where Jesus rebukes Satan and Jude verse 9 where Michael the archangel dared not bring a judgment of blasphemy against Satan and calls on the Lord to rebuke him. Jesus is God. Michael the archangel is a powerful angel, but he is still only an angel. Jehovah's Witnesses also believe that it is wrong to get a blood transfusion. They point to a passage in Acts chapter 15 as the reason they refuse to accept blood donations. Now, Acts 15, 20 says, Abstain from pollution of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. Now, it's clear from this context that these instructions were against eating and drinking blood, not blood transfusions. Blood transfusions weren't even possible in Bible times, so there is no possibility that this scripture could be referring to blood transfusions. There were many pagan religious practices that involved eating and drinking blood and strangling an animal to keep more of its blood in the meat. That is what this Bible passage is speaking against, not blood transfusions. Is it acceptable for a Christian to receive or give a blood transfusion? since the Bible doesn't explicitly say a decision of this nature can only be made between that person and God. One consideration might be that God created billions of people over the centuries, but only four blood types, making it possible to transfuse blood from one person to another, regardless of race or nationality. Perhaps that is an argument for the legitimacy of blood transfusions. There is no command either way in Scripture. Blood transfusions are, therefore, a matter of conscience. Once again, the most important thing we can do for those involved in the Jehovah's Witness cult or any cult or false religion is to pray for them. We need to pray that God would change their hearts and open their eyes to the truth. We need to pray that God would convince them of their need for salvation through Jesus Christ. Without the power of God and conviction of the Holy Spirit, we will never succeed in convincing anyone of the truth. Also, we need to be living a godly Christian life so that those trapped in cults and false religions can see the change that God has made in our own lives. We need to pray for wisdom and how we can minister to them in a powerful way. After all of this, we must be bold in our actual sharing of the gospel. We must proclaim the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. We always need to be prepared to defend our faith, but we must do so with gentleness and respect. This is James Collins, reminding you once again that the Bible says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever.
0: Today we have the Revelation Unveiled Collection, three books that help us take a deeper look inside of Revelation. Order all three books for a gift of $25 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144 or order online swrc.com. Tomorrow, Eric Barger will look at how the occult is impacting our culture and what you and I can do to fight back. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily podcast. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com.